welcome to the sixth session of Let's Keep the Amazing in Grace. And this session is entitled, Jesus Unveiled. And of all the passages in the Bible that contrast law and grace, I think 2 Corinthians 3 might be my favorite. Um, the 16th verse was the inspiration for the title of the book, Unveiling Jesus. So uh, we'll see why as we go through the scriptures. But let's start in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 4. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as coming from ourselves. So he is beginning to contrast law and grace here. The, the old covenant mindset was sufficiency of self. But our sufficiency is from God. That's the new covenant mindset. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, not of the law, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So Paul said the letter kills. In other words, the old covenant law produced death. And to see the background of the letter that kills, we're going to need to go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus, to the very first Passover. So the night before God delivered the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptians, He instructed them through His servant Moses that they should paint, paint the blood of a spotless lamb over the doorposts of their homes. So we'll look at Exodus 12, and we'll just look at verse 13, where the Lord is speaking here. He says, Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over. So if you recall the story, Moses had said to Pharaoh, Let my people go, but he wouldn't do it. So God sent these ten plagues to force the hand of Pharaoh to release his people because he had been such a brutal taskmaster. Well, the last plague was the death of the firstborn. So that night, the angel of death passed through the streets. And if the house had the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, then the angel would pass over, hence the name Passover. So God had said, when I see the blood, I will pass over. He didn't say, when I see your credentials, when I see your good standing in the community, when I see your good behavior, when I see your faithfulness. No, it was the blood that saved them. And in the same way, the blood of His beloved Son is painted over the doorposts of our lives and has washed us whiter than snow. And so now it is not about our goodness. It's about His. It's not about our faithfulness. It's about His. And it's not about our love for Him. It's about His love for us. So the Israelites were set free that night through the Red Sea after 400 years of captivity. And what happened in the next 50 days expresses God's heart of grace for His people. During that 50 days of grace from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, there is no record of anyone dying. There is no record of punishment or rebuke from God even though they sinned. There is no record of the word wrath or the word anger regarding God towards His people even though they complained and complained and complained. About 500 years later, King David wrote about this period of time and he explained why God showered His people with grace during this period of time. In Psalm 105, 37, God also brought them out of Egypt 
with silver and gold, and there was none feeble among his tribes. Now I want to stop there. They say there's 2.5 million Israelites that came out of Egypt. It would be absolutely impossible without divine intervention that none of them would be feeble. Egypt was glad when they departed for fear of the Israelites had fallen upon them. God spread a cloud for a covering and a fire to give light in the night. And the people asked, and He brought quail, and He satisfied them with the bread of heaven. And He opened the rock, and water gushed out, and it ran into the dry places like a river. Why all this grace? Next verse, 4, because He remembered His holy promise. You know what that promise was? Blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply you. And who did He give it to? Abraham. Abraham lived 430 years before the law was given. And he was under an unconditional covenant of grace. And I believe this 50 days of grace is the time we're living in now, after the cross. Because they were under that Abrahamic covenant. The law had not yet been given. And we're under the covenant of grace, the new covenant in Jesus' blood. But I believe this 50 days of grace is God saying, this is grace. Can you handle it? It is going to require something of you. You're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to stop looking at the natural. That's what you're used to because that's Egypt. But you're going to have to look to the heavenly. Now all you've known is the bondage of this world, but that's not my doing and that's not my plan for you. So don't look back. You need to look up. 50 days after the Passover, 50 days after the Exodus through the Red Sea, they did come to Mount Sinai. And that is where the law was given, the letter that kills. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. But before He gave the law, God expressed His desire for His people. In Exodus 19, verse 4, He says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. You see, God wanted His people near Him, not far away. And how did He carry them? He fed them. He provided for them. He supernaturally protected them. And then He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice. That Hebrew word obey is shama. If you will listen to Me. If you will hear me from heaven if you would just trust me and keep my covenant guard watch protect my covenant then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people for all the earth is mine and then he says to Moses these are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel God spoke that right before He gave the Ten Commandments. And up until that point, there was only one covenant in place, and that was the Abrahamic covenant of grace. And it was not dependent on man's faithfulness. 100% dependent on God's faithfulness. Galatians 3.17 tells us that the law came in alongside grace, but never annulled it. You see, grace was always in place. And grace has always been God's heart for His people. Then in verse 6 of Exodus 19, He says, And you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Not just one priest. A kingdom of priests. A priesthood of all believers. Now that was His ultimate desire. And that is our reality in the new covenant because of Jesus' blood. In Revelation 1, it says, To Jesus, to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. And because of that, He has made us 
kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever. Listen to the verbiage of these verses. This is exactly what he was talking about. In 1 Peter 2, 9, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So he carried us on eagle's wings out of Egypt, out of the bondage of the flesh, out of the bondage of the old nature and into the light that exposes the goodness of God and the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ, which we'll see in just a minute. By his grace, he delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, showered them with those that grace for 50 days, grace upon grace. And then they came to the foot of Mount Sinai and, God, and Moses delivered this message to them and they were at a crossroads. What would they decide? What would they choose? Would they choose to continue to trust God, to continue to carry them on eagle's wings? Or would they begin to trust in their own strength? We'll see in Exodus 19.8. Then all the people, all of them, together in unison, said, all that the Lord has commanded we will do. In other words, anything God says, we can do it. Now, you might think that's exactly what they should have said. But if you look at the tone and tenor of the Hebrew language there and the verb tenses, you will find out that this was a boastful declaration of their own self-sufficiency. That Hebrew phrase, we will do, means to make or to produce by labor. In other words, whatever you tell us to do, God, we can do it. Whatever is required of us, we can certainly, fully, we are fully capable of continually performing it. They may have, may have come out of Egypt, but Egypt was still in them. They agreed by that statement to come into a system where every single one of them would be completely liable for every single sin they committed. The law was necessary because the heart of man was bankrupt. So bankrupt, so proud, they did not realize their need for a Savior. They did not realize their need for those eagle's wings. That independent spirit of Adam was broken through the law. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, but now that we're under Christ, we are no longer under that tutor. In Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments were audibly given by the thundering voice of God from Mount Sinai. And then in chapters 21 through 23 of Exodus, God gave the rest of the law to Moses and he relayed it to the people. In, in Hebrews 12 in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews, he's speaking to New Covenant believers when he says this, but he talked about that day when the voice of God boomed those Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. He says, you, speaking of the believer, you have not come to that mountain of law that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word would not be spoken over them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight of it that even Abraham said, I'm exceedingly afraid and terrified. So much for their big promise. All that the Lord commands, we will do. They had no idea what they were agreeing to. 
And if we touch that mountain of law, we're going to be pummeled with Satan's arrows of condemnation. Moses himself said he was exceedingly afraid, which goes to show that the law will condemn the best of us. But the good news is that grace will save the worst of us. Then in Exodus 24, God told Moses to come to the top of Mount Sinai and bring with him two tablets of stone on which he would etch the the Ten Commandments with his very own finger. So Moses went up the mountain, got the Ten Commandments. He comes down the mountain with those two tablets of stone in his hands and he stopped short of the bottom. And he did that because they were already breaking the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before you. Thou shalt not create a graven image. What were they doing? They had formed a golden calf out of the gold they brought out of Egypt and they were worshiping this calf. Again, so much for their big promise. All that the Lord commands, we will do. So in righteous anger, Moses breaks those two tablets of stone and they would be replaced later with another set, set another time up on the mountain. But because of the judgment of the law, 3,000 Israelites died at the hands of the Levites that day. But fast forward to the new covenant on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after our Passover lamb was crucified, there were 120 worshipers up in the upper room waiting on the promise of the Spirit. And then all of a sudden, a mighty rushing wind blew through Tongues of fire fell on each one of them and the Holy Spirit filled the house and filled the people. And then a little while later, you'll see that Peter is preaching the gospel and 3,000 people were saved. When the law was given, 3,000 people died. But when the Spirit was given, 3,000 people were saved. Which goes to show, back to 2 Corinthians 3, the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Then, after that verse, Paul goes into an explanation of the difference between the letter that kills and the Spirit that gives life. In verse 7, he says, But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, what's he talking about? The Ten Commandments, the only part of the law written and engraved on stones. He called it the ministry of death. Why? Because it ministered death. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. I'm going to explain all that in a minute. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? He's making the comparison, right? The ministry of death versus the more glorious ministry of the Spirit. But he did say that the law had glory. It was perfect. It was unbending. But its perfection was a glory that caused the people to run away instead of drawing near. And when Paul refers to the glory of Moses' countenance being so brilliant that the people couldn't look at it, he was actually talking about the second time that Moses went up the mountain to get that, those two tablets of stone. What was different about that time? In Exodus 34, 6, we see it. And the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord said, The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. So the second giving of the Ten Commandments was tempered with mercy and grace because God revealed His name, the Lord, merciful and gracious, while He's giving the Ten Commandments. So... 
with his face shining with the glory of God's mercy and grace, but at the same time his holiness and righteousness. He comes down the mountain, Moses does, carrying those two tablets of stone, which is going to condemn every single one of them. But the good news is that earlier, when Moses had been on that mountain fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, the God of mercy and grace gave him the instructions for the tabernacle, a picture of grace. And he says to Moses, once you build that tabernacle, I want you to take those two tablets of stone into that tabernacle. And I want you to take them into the Holy of Holies. And I want you to put them in the box. Ah. And I want you to cover that box with the mercy seat. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, you're going to sprinkle the blood of a spotless lamb on that mercy seat. And when I see the blood... I'm going to see the innocence of the Lamb, not the disobedience of the man, which goes to show that even under law, mercy triumphs over judgment. Grace has always been his heart. All right, verse 9. If the ministry of condemnation had glory. Here we go. He's calling the law the ministry of condemnation. Why is that? Because it ministers condemnation. Why is that? Because nobody could fully keep it. And I just want to say, nobody preaches pure law, do they? Not today. Nobody does. And most Christians say, oh, we're under grace. And we don't strictly follow the law because they don't subscribe to the over 600 laws of the Old Covenant. They say, oh, we're saved by grace, but we got to keep the Ten Commandments to maintain our righteousness before God. So, yeah, we're saved by grace, but we got to maintain it by the law. That's a mixture. Paul said in Colossians 2.6, he says, As you therefore have received Christ the Lord, so walk in Him. How did you receive Christ Jesus as Lord? By grace through faith. How do you walk it out every single day of your life? By grace through faith in His righteousness. I'm telling you, if pure law were preached today, I think people would be better off than this mongrel religion of grace and law mixed up. Because then they would scream for mercy and maybe they would turn to Jesus. For those who advocate for the law, you need to remember, and it's not anybody in this room, but those might be listening. If you advocate for the law, you need to remember. It can't bend. If you bend the law to where you can keep it, you dishonor it. For the law to be the law, it's got to remain in its total, inflexible perfection. And for those who advocate for principles of the law mixed with grace, you're dishonoring both. You're robbing the law of its excellence. You're robbing grace of its beauty and purity. And I found from personal experience that a mixture of grace and law creates a powerless religion. But for those of us who believe in pure grace, we're for the law for the purpose that God gave the law and it was to bring man to the end of himself so that he would turn to the God of mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. So we don't preach the ministry of condemnation. We preach the grace of God. And I'm going to repeat again, as I, this verse means more to me than it ever did, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him, faith, not Fear, not works, faith. Whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. All right, back to verse 9. For if 
The ministry of condemnation had glory. The ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. The ministry of death kills because it ministers condemnation. But the ministry of the Spirit gives life because it ministers Christ's eternal righteousness. And if we can get a revelation of this ministry of righteousness, nothing is going to be impossible. And we as the church will rise up to be who we actually are. Because there's nothing more powerful than this ministry of the Spirit which is the ministry of His righteousness working in us and through us to transform our world around us with His life, with His mercy and grace and forgiveness. What the world needs now is the love of Jesus. I'm telling you. Next verse. For even what was made glorious, speaking of the law, had no glory in this respect because the glory that excels for if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. What is he saying? The glory of the old covenant was worth nothing compared to the overwhelming glory of the new covenant which has replaced it. The glory of the new covenant is an unfading glory because it is the glory of an unending, everlasting righteousness and an eternal life. It is a foolproof covenant that you cannot break. Therefore, since we have such hope, such confident expectation of good, we use great boldness of speech. Now that does mean boldness to tell the truth. But in this context, that word, boldness of speech, is the word parousia. And it means without concealment, without the use of types and shadows. You see, throughout the Old Testament, they used types and shadows. But they were just shadows of better things to come in Jesus. So we preach the substance, not the shadows. We preach the finished work of Jesus, not the carrot on the end of the stick. We preach Jesus who fulfilled the law. So with great boldness of speech, Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face. Now even that veil was a shadow of Jesus and I'll tell you about it in a minute. So that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was. Speaking of the fading glory of the old covenant. But their minds were blinded for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ until this day. The veil of condemnation is covering those who are reading the Old Testament with Old Covenant lenses because they think it applies to them. And then they read about the New Covenant and they don't understand it. They can't see the face of Jesus because that veil of condemnation is trying to convince them that they're not worthy to speak to God face to face. That veil is a picture of the veil in the old covenant temple that separated the presence of God from the people. But Jesus became that veil with His very own flesh when He took our condemnation for us. And when He was crucified, at that very moment, the veil in the temple was torn by God Himself from top to bottom, forever removing the barrier between God and man. The veil was taken away in Christ. Verse 15, but even to this day when Moses is read, in other words, when the law is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That's the verse that inspired the title of the book, Unveiling Jesus. 
When one turns to Jesus, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And King James says, that Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. What is the context of true liberty? You're not under the law. The veil of condemnation has been removed. You can look in the face of Jesus without shame and live. You're free from limiting thoughts and accusations from all the fears and lies of the enemy. You're under grace. Now that verse, verse 17, where it says, Now the Lord is that Spirit. In the context of 2 Corinthians 3, it's speaking of two ways to view the Scriptures. One is when Moses is read. The other is when one turns to the Lord. So, the Lord is that Spirit, is the Spirit of Jesus that you can see when you've been awakened to it. It's that scarlet thread throughout the whole Bible. So when you read your Scriptures, who do you see? Do you see Moses telling you how to perfect yourself with a list of instructions? Or do you see Jesus on every single page with beautiful truths and beautiful pictures of the God of mercy and grace? Do you see the spotless lamb? That's Jesus. Do you see the mercy seat? That's Jesus. Do you see the high priest? That's Jesus. Even the ark is Jesus. That's His humanity. Do you see the brazen altar? That's the cross of Jesus. Do you see the bronze serpent in the wilderness? That's, that's Jesus. Even Noah's ark is Jesus. The tree of life is Jesus. We could go on and on. Make your own list. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed, metamorpho, from a caterpillar to a butterfly, into the same image, from glory to glory. Ah! From glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord, now we can all look full in the wonderful face of Jesus. And when that happens, we move from the glory of the old covenant self-sufficiency to the glory, the unfaded glory of Jesus' righteousness. And the divine instrument of that transformation is the Holy Spirit from within. And now that unveiled, unfading glory in the face of Jesus is the mirror of the new creation. The groom lifts the veil... He looks at the bride and he says, You are all fair, my love. There is no spot in you. Now, I'm going to take a minute. It's more time than I have, but I, I wanted to say, share this with y'all. When God revealed Himself as the God of mercy and grace to Moses, He hid him in the cleft of the rock. And He used His own hand to shield Moses' face so that he wouldn't see the face of God. You know why? Because nobody could see the face of God and live. So he passed by, his glory passed by, and he allowed him to see his backside. But even the, the glory of the backside was glorious so much that Moses' face shone. But the Greek in 2 Corinthians 3, where Paul talks about this, it implies that Moses only lifted the veil after he spoke to the people. He wanted them to be afraid, is what it means. He wanted them to be afraid of that glory. And then when he would walk away, he'd put the veil on because he didn't want them to know that the glory was fading. 
He didn't want them to know the old covenant was temporary. It was passing away. That terror of that glory was the surest guarantee that they would obey, that they would behave themselves. Are we afraid of removing the law? Are we afraid that people would just go crazy without the law? Are we afraid of letting go of shame and fear and condemnation as the prime motivators for good behavior? Or do we trust the Spirit of God to convict the unbeliever of unbelief and the believer of righteousness? Do we trust grace to be the new tutor? Paul said in Romans 10 verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, to everyone who has faith, who puts their trust in Jesus Christ. The law instantly became obsolete when Jesus bore our sin and paid our debt of law-breaking at the cross. And the mediator is no longer Moses, who is a mere man. The, the mediator is now God Himself, Jesus Christ. And now, with boldness, parousia, boldness to enter the holy, holiest through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, we come into the presence of God and the more we behold, the more we live. Now, I want to go back to Hebrews 12 for just a second where the writer spoke about this mountain that we have not come to, Mount Sinai, the law. He told us the mountain that we have come to under the new covenant. He said, you have come, past tense, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, so many you can't count, around us right now, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Why? Because you, every single one of you, is registered in heaven. To God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Why is that? Because you are a just man made perfect. Listen, you may not believe it, but that's the truth. God is not prejudiced he sees accurately what no man can actually see. See, your spouse may not see it. Your children may not see it. But what God sees is you standing before Him in the full glory of the finished work of Jesus. Because of the blood of Jesus, when you stand before God, He does not see one speck of sin in your spirit. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So Jesus was scourged and beaten. His flesh and blood was splattered everywhere. They mocked Him. They laughed at Him. They scourged His back and then put a cross on it. And then He had to have help carrying that cross up to Golgotha. And when He got there, they hung Him on it. They crucified Him. And He shed the rest of His blood for us. And everywhere His blood was shed, it had a voice. You know what Abel's voice spoke? Revenge! That's not what we speak under the new covenant. We speak of better things. The blood of Jesus speaks mercy and grace and healing and forgiveness and righteousness of Christ. 
one more verse. This one comes right after 2 Corinthians 3.18, the last verse of chapter 3, into verse 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, new covenant ministry, we do not lose heart. Ugh. That chapter actually goes on to say, we are pressed but not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair. We are persecuted but not abandoned. We are struck down but not destroyed. We carry the sufferings of Jesus in our body. And if you're like me, you probably said a few times, Lord, take me home. And He will one day. But in the meantime, we carry that sufferings in our body that His life might be released and manifested through these earthen vessels for as long as we're tethered to this earth or until Jesus returns, whichever comes first. So no matter what we face, no matter how dire things seem, no matter how dark this world is, we do not lose heart because our hope is not in man. Our hope is not in the government. <laughs> our hope is in Jesus and He is the substance of everything we hope for. He is the evidence of everything that we have not seen yet. And that's why we need to always put all our hope in Jesus. Amen.